0: As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment and a Tasty Snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford. And he's brilliant to talk to, the leader of a country, anyway... But to talk to the leader of a country at a time when they're managing this crisis was absolutely fascinating. To talk to someone who's making the decisions, who's the top person making the decisions in Wales, is great. So there's loads of detail about the Welsh Government's response um, to the coronavirus. There's some really good stuff about Welsh politics and Welsh Labour politics. And this is about the implications of the crisis in a personal, in a political in in a pragmatic way, it's about all the different strands that being a leader of a country involves at a time like this. I began by asking Mark what it was like for him having to lead a country remotely.
1: Well, certainly we have got used in an incredibly quick way to doing things in a way that, you know, we never used to do. Uh, and I think what we're learning is it comes with some huge advantages—the you know, ability to pull people together quickly and meet, you know, rapidly over things. Uh, our cabinet meets every day, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning to have a half hour of sharing the very latest information, making sure we're all acting together on key things. So that part of it, I think, is great. You lose stuff as well, don't yeah. you? You know, being in the room with people uh you don't get that casual two minutes as you walk down the corridor, checking something by putting your head around the door. So there are there are definite gains, but it's not all game like that.
0: Do you to try and mitigate that then? Are you trying to have more one-to-one zooms or or fun conversations with people? I suppose if you did that with everyone, you wouldn't have any hours left in the day.
1: Yeah, no, there, there isn't a lot of opportunity for that. Um, most of my colleagues end up coming into the Welsh Government Building maybe once a week uh, because they've got things that can only be done face-to-face. So because I tend to come in almost every day because there's something of that sort for me to do here, um, I get to see see my colleagues face-to-face over the cycle of a week. And that really does help. And I know people who are working from home um, who do come in for one day to the office do think that that is a big benefit to them. And they can get a lot of things done in a different sort of way. So we are thinking here about what the future will look like. The building I'm in now would normally have about 2,000 people working in it. It's around just over 100 uh, at the moment. And I definitely do not want to go back to days when 2,000 people tried to get in here at 9 o'clock in the morning and all tried to leave here at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So um, we're thinking very actively about our working practices You know, when we begin to inch back to the day when we can do more face-to-face and less remotely.
0: That's the sort of thing that some um, conservative politicians might be more inclined to say. But in a way, this presents a, a, an opportunity for efficiency savings, not in terms of redundancies, but you could save a fortune on office space and heating and lighting if people can do their jobs from home.
1: Well... I think there will be companies that will be asking themselves whether they need fixed assets of you know expensive buildings and things in the way that they did I think we will need buildings we will need people to be able to get together uh, but there will be you know more creative more flexible ways that people can use uh, their time and it's a matter of trying to extract you know the, such pluses as we can from what has been a pretty awful experience but still to be thinking of Those pluses and then to be able to apply them uh, when the word, I, I banned the term get back to normal in any advice that comes to me because I don't just want to go back to what was normal. But when we begin to return to a bit more like things used to be, we don't want to go just all the way back, forgetting the things we've learned.
0: You've got, I mean, you, obviously, your role involves so many different things. You're the leader of a country. You have to coordinate your own government. You also have to interact with the UK government. How different are those two uh, roles? I mean, in terms of the technology you're using at the moment, are you doing COBRA meetings over Zoom?
1: Yes, uh, we are. So um, I will have a conversation most weeks with the other devolved administrations. Uh, and quite often with the mayor of London uh, as well. Um, those are sometimes a combination of old-fashioned telephone uh, calls, uh, but uh, meetings with the UK government, which have happened in different ways almost every day, uh, have often involved you know technology of the sort we are using now, where you can see people. And yes, the last Cobra meeting certainly was conducted by Zoom, with you know a very large cast of people all on the line at the same time. All muted, hopefully. Uh, well, most muted. Yeah. It's always somebody, isn't there, who uh, forgets that the dog is barking in the background or whatever.
0: So with the devolved administrations, do you talk amongst yourselves, in effect, uh, and then talk to the UK government? Are they two separate meetings?
1: Uh, well, we have more regular meetings between the devolved administrations, uh, and that's always been the case. You know, we've always had strong... Links with Scotland and with Northern Ireland, and they've got stronger uh, in some ways, you know, between Wales and Scotland over the Brexit uh, years. Uh, and since the executive resumed in Northern Ireland, we've had very good contact with the First Minister uh, and with the Deputy First Minister as well. Um, so we're, we're not meeting in a sense of, you know, preparing for our meeting with the UK government. We, we are just transacting business between us and sharing ideas and possibilities. Just to give you a practical example, in terms of PPE, um, we've had uh, spots over the period where Scotland has loaned us um, stuff from their stocks, and we have provided material to Northern Ireland and latterly to Scotland as well. So it's a mutual aid system between us, and helping each other out to where we need to. Um, And then we meet again then with the UK government less frequently, um, slightly less reliably. um, But uh, we're all on that call together as well.
0: It's interesting that the the relationship between uh, the Welsh government and the Scottish government uh, improved during the Brexit years. I mean, on the one hand, you can see why, because it's about the UK government and how they handled our departure from the European Union. but Scotland voted to remain and Wales voted to leave, even if the the political leadership of uh, Wales is um, heavily remain. There are two different political scenarios there.
1: There are. And, you know, I'm not going to say for a minute that that doesn't create its tensions. uh, As inevitably, there are differences in the mandates that we have. You know, the, the Scottish government has, I'm sure it would certainly say, a mandate having won elections in Scotland to pursue taking Scotland out of the United Kingdom, whereas the Welsh government is a government that fiercely believes in devolution, fiercely believes that decisions that only affect people in Wales should only be made by people in Wales, but thinks that being part of the United Kingdom is to Wales' advantage as well. So, you know, we've got very different political starting points. But in the practical business of Brexit, whether you voted to stay or whether you voted to leave, Uh, Nobody, as one of my colleagues on the floor of the Assembly said, nobody voted to take leave of their census. Uh, And some of the choices that were being made uh, by the UK government were so damaging uh, to the Welsh economy and to Welsh prospects and to Scotland as well that we had strong common cause.
0: You're in such a difficult position being the only Labour leader of a nation in the UK and within Britain, certainly. And um, When you're dealing with, those, certainly when you're dealing with Wales and Scotland, you've, you've got Nicola Sturgeon, who who <laughs> wants to leave the UK, as you put it, and, and, and with you, you want to stay. I mean, it, for you, you must have to be, your political antenna must have to be so sharp to think, I want to stay in the EU, but Wales voted to leave. I want to try and keep the UK together, so I have to be slightly careful about perhaps what other parts of the UK and their governments might be asking for. I mean, is, is that the reality of it, or, or or is it less political than
1: that? Um, well, often what you're focused on is not the politics of things, but the you know the policy implications and uh, impacts that decisions would have on Wales. But there are some very strange moments in all of this. Uh, when Theresa May was Prime Minister, uh, she extended an invitation to the First Ministers of Scotland and Wales. The Northern Ireland executive not uh, in being at that time, uh, to become members of a UK cabinet committee uh, preparing for Brexit. So uh, I used to attend these meetings, often held in a sort of dungeon, somewhere underneath (laughs) the House of Commons. Uh, And, you know, the Prime Minister would be there, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Foreign Secretary, the Home Secretary, all the sort of, you know, big players in the UK government. And I used to look around the room and I'd say, well, 30 million people voted for Labour in 2017. And I'm the only one of them sitting in this room. And that is very weird. That is a very strange feeling uh, when you think of it like that. So you do occasionally have to pinch yourself and remind yourself that these have been very strange experiences.
0: And, And it must be so difficult to get the balance right between doing the high politics and putting party differences aside and working together for the best of the Welsh people and for the United Kingdom and not being co-opted into political decisions that you would disagree with if you're being used as a political shield.
1: Yeah, you will have to be alert to that, certainly, that you're not just being invited uh, into the room in order to have your hands dipped in the blood. Uh, But uh, I feel lucky in a way that the ground is firm under my feet, always in this way. My job is to go there and speak up for what is right for Wales, to stand up for the things that I think people in Wales would regard as valuable and important in their lives. And so long as I can look myself in the mirror afterwards and say that that's what I did, then I feel like I've played the essential part that is there for me to play in those forums that are beyond Wales. And that's a that's a lens that I try to come at. You know, in all those. Uh, meetings. I'm not looking for quarrelling. I'm not looking to make uh, just nakedly political uh, points. I'm there to think, faced with this decision, what would people in Wales want to see? What would matter to them most? What would fit in with the way that they think our society ought to look like and be shaped? And if I can manage to nudge things, even the tiniest bit in that direction, then being there was worthwhile.
0: The Welsh Government's taken a slightly different approach to the UK government in terms of easing lockdown restrictions and things like that. You've got um, the traffic light system, the lockdown, red, amber, green.
1: So what do each of those four stages mean? So the approach that we have taken is not out of line with anything that's happening across the United Kingdom, in the sense we are all moving in the direction of trying to ease ourselves out of lockdown. Um, But we are calibrating that decision in the circumstances that we face. And my approach is to be cautious and to be careful and to view everything through the lens of the public health impact of everything we do. And the path to stick to is incredibly narrow. So... We believe that the virus, the R rate, everybody will be hearing about in Wales, is about 0.8. And at 0.8, over the next three months, we still anticipate that up to 800 people in Wales could die from the virus. So even at 0.8, you know, hundreds of people are going to die. If that 0.8 crept up to 1.1, the number of deaths go from 800 to 7,200. So a tiny fractions of one percentage point difference. And, you you know, many, many more people's lives are at risk. So, but the path to go down is really narrow and doing it carefully and doing it cautiously, we think is the right way. And we think it's the way that people in Wales would prefer. Um, You know, I know that there are some people who are, Desperate to get it over with, want to throw off the shackles of uh, lockdown and so on. But actually in Wales, that's a small minority. More people by far are worried about being asked to go back into places which they think would pose a risk to themselves or others. And so the cautious approach, the one step at a time, moving into the red zone first of the traffic lights where... Life doesn't look terribly different to it as it did in lockdown. Monitoring that, being sure that those steps aren't driving R back above one. And if you are sure, then you can move into the amber zone where, you know, a few more freedoms become available. Life begins to look a little bit more like it once did. And again, you monitor all of that confident. You can be that art is not going uh, into the wrong part of the spectrum then you move into green. Green looks quite a lot like life did before coronavirus, but not identical to it. Because until there is a vaccine or effective treatment, um, coronavirus is with us for a long time to come, even beyond the green zone in our traffic lights.
0: How important is it for, you think the whole of the UK to have the same messages? So when Boris Johnson moved from stay at home to stay alert, that was very controversial with a lot of people. Other people said, well, if he's telling you that you don't have to stay at home, you have to change the language. Do you find Stay Alert confusing?
1: Um, well, what I say to people in Wales who are confused by it, our message to people in Wales remains stay home, um, you know, protect the NHS and save lives. But where you do leave home, and you can in Wales leave home for slightly more purposes than you could you know, in the very depths of lockdown, then staying alert is not a bad thing to do because, you know, uh, coronavirus has not gone away and remaining alert to social distancing, sensible hygiene measures, thinking about the way you behave and so on, you know, it, it's not a bad message uh, in, if you are out of, out of home, but you should only be out of home in Wales for a limited number of purposes. And if you are out of home, you must stay local. That's another really big difference in our messages. You know, you can leave home to exercise, you can leave home to shop, you can leave home to collect medicines, and for a small number of other things too, but stay local. No jumping in your car and heading to the beach at Skegness uh, in Wales.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, Skegness is
1: a heck of a commute from Wales. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Especially when you've got... Lots of lovely beaches on your local doorstep. Of but, but you know what I mean? In a, you know, the message in England, you can jump in your car and travel anywhere, has been very unhelpful uh, in Wales. Uh, and we've had a of lot of effort uh, into, most often, just simply explaining to people who come across the border, who are then stopped by the police, that the rules in Wales are different. And, you know, almost always, people are very understanding of that and act according to uh Welsh law while they are in Wales, but the confusion of those messages has not been helpful.
0: And have have the police had to stop many people coming through the English-Welsh border?
1: Um the police have had to stop uh, a lot of people. But to give you an example of what I just said, uh Gwent Police, so that's South East Wales police reported over last weekend they did a bit of an exercise in Monmouth, which is right on the English border. They stopped 189 motorcyclists who were coming over the border and into Wales that weekend. They issued one fixed penalty notice because 188 of the 189 were just had the situation explained to them. They were educated about the rules in Wales, and they voluntarily turned around and uh, went home again. There was one of them who was not susceptible to education and persuasion and ended up uh with a fine but i but i think just that gives you a a sense of the fact that most people when you when you have a reasonable conversation with them behave reasonably in response
0: that's that's 189 just at that part of the border if you extrapolate that and multiply that right up the welsh border with england There's actually thousands of people coming into Wales. No, no, it
1: is a lot of people. Um, But we take some heart from the fact that, you know, the evidence does not suggest that that number has grown over the period of lockdown. We've had to do significant exercises every weekend, particularly bank holiday weekends. You know, our motorway signs as you come into Wales warn people that the rules here are different and that, you know, you must stay local, you shouldn't be getting in your car and travelling to beauty spots. And if you do, they're closed. In any case, the car parks are closed and the beauty spots are closed. Uh, And by and large, I think we've managed to hold the line on it. When UK ministers are talking about changes that they are making that apply only to England, it would be hugely helpful if they made that clear when they were talking. Mm. Uh, But very often they don't. And, you know, I, I sort of understand why that happens. But they do need just. More consciously to be thinking, who is this message for? Is this a UK message? In which case you explain, it applies to everybody. Or is it a message that is only for England? In which case you need to say that explicitly so that people understand the distinction.
0: The tabloids love, um, you know, conversations about the different parts of, and not just the tabloids, to be fair, I suppose we all fixate on different parts of the UK doing things differently, particularly in an era where we've had a Scottish independence referendum, there may be another one who knows when, these are big parts of our national life now. But what about within Wales? Because there might be the opportunity if, say, Cardiff and Newport are more densely populated, actually to keep those places locked down, but say to places in rural Wales, you are allowed out, would that be even more confusing for people? Or do you think there's a world in which that actually could be delivered?
1: Well, uh, my problem with it is is exactly the combination of confusion and enforcement. Uh, So, um, you know, in a rational world, the case for doing different things in different places is real, because the rate. Of the circulation of the virus on the physical circumstances are undoubtedly different if you were on the Sheen Peninsula you know, in far north west Wales um, and than if you are in the Gwent valleys. But given how challenging it has been to have had a different message for the whole of Wales <laughs> to to England, then trying to calibrate the message so that it is different in one part of Wales to another part of Wales, and then to enforce it because you know if you're going to say there are different rules you're going to have to find a way of making those rules stick so uh my conclusion up until now has been that while the case can be made on paper in practice uh it 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 just isn't deliverable wales is a country of only 3 million people a single message for the whole of wales remains the easiest to explain, the easiest to understand, the easiest to enforce. And we probably oughtn't to give that up at this moment uh, in favour of more nuanced, but inevitably more complex messaging.
0: Have you had much of an issue with misinformation in Wales and all this 5G nonsense and people gathering? We saw them in London and there were quite a few in Glasgow over the weekend.
1: Has it been a big problem in Wales? Uh, Not a big problem, uh, I don't say it's a non-existent problem. There were threats of gatherings in Wales over last weekend. None of them at all actually materialised. Uh, but you know, there will be people in Wales who are prey to a sort of five G uh, type, uh, you know, internet. Uh, I think of the right word for it, really
0: bullshit. I think conspiracy
1: it? type, uh, you know, theories that run and so on. So we're not immune from it. Uh, certainly not. But has it been a big problem? No.
0: On the economy, then Rishi Sunak has said the furlough scheme will be extended to at least October, and they'll review it then. Do you worry that if Wales still needs tighter restrictions than England, that you've then got a situation where the UK Treasury might say, and I don't know if you've had these conversations with them, what they've said? Well, we'll only guarantee the furlough scheme as long as it effectively applies to England.
1: Well, um, first of all, I want to say that uh, we are very appreciative. Of all the things that the UK government has done in you know, the furlough scheme and the other big uh, schemes of help it has put in place, I think uh, they've done the right thing uh, on those. And it was good to see the scheme being extended to October. And we are indeed in conversations over time with uh, ministers in the Treasury and the Chancellor about uh, how that scheme might be shaped beyond uh, October. Um, the case for the United Kingdom, for me, has never been particularly a sort of sentimental uh, case. The case for me is a practical case. It's a giant insurance policy in which we all contribute the things we can contribute, and we all take out to the pot uh, for the things that we need. Uh, and um, the measures that the Treasury have put in place are part of the glue. Uh, keep the United Kingdom together and make the case for the United Kingdom. So any departure from that, I think, would not just be um, unwelcome in an economic sense, but it would send a very bad message about what you get out of being a member of the United Kingdom. Uh, and I hope that this government is alert uh, to that and plays that into their thinking alongside you know, the, the more purely economic considerations they'll have in mind.
0: Did you ever think as a a Welsh Labour man who'd grown up in the country of Bevan and so many other Labour giants that you would ever see a Conservative government paying working people's wages?
1: Well, uh, you know, I can't avoid the irony. You know, I spent uh, a lot of my time in November and December knocking doors, speaking on platforms, advocating for Labour's, as I saw it, modest. you know, uh, manifesto in which we said to people in the United Kingdom that we could afford investment in public services of the sort that was absolutely mainstream in Europe, the same as France or less than Germany, you know, all of that sort of thing, to hear you know, the Tories attack us as though we were suggesting something wildly extravagant and unaffordable. So the irony of seeing them do what they are doing now, which is, by the way, as you say, you know, just a form of practical socialism. Um, to see them doing that uh, now on the scale they are doing it, you can't help but be struck by the irony of it. Uh, but as I say, it, it is the right thing to do. Uh, what we are more anxious about is, you know, will these people just revert to type immediately after the crisis is over and head straight back into some sort of neoliberal austerity? in which the price is heaped onto the shoulders of those least able to bear it, whereas actually we will need a period well into the future where government's role ought to be to make sure that there is effective demand in the economy, uh, that people have money in their pockets to buy goods and services so that people who produce goods and services have a market they can sell into, uh, and, you know... You, you can't help but be fearful looking at their record since 2010, uh, that that will be a, a difficult swallow, uh, for them. But if they go in the opposite direction, then we are piling you know, one set of misfortunes which nobody could have foreseen into man made disasters or person made, human made disasters, uh, that can be avoided because other choices there was never, um, you know. The Tories have always managed somehow to persuade people that there is no alternative, when there is always an alternative. And there certainly will be alternatives as we come out of this crisis.
0: That's it. The politics inevitably creeps in, doesn't it? We go through this process together, it's already creeping in. Inevitably, after this, there'll be a national conversation and a, a debate about how we effectively pay for the furlough scheme after it's been delivered, whether it's through high levels of borrowing or, or tax rises or cuts or or spending cuts um and that that is going to be a that's gonna be a crucial test of not just the government but where the Labour Party stands I mean is this something you've discussed with Keir Starmer yet about how Labour manages the post-crisis politics
1: yeah so uh, you know I, I speak to Keir um most weeks and he's been very generous since becoming the leader in you know making sure that we have those conversations of the Candidates that we were lucky enough to have. I thought we had a fantastic uh, panel of candidates for Labour's leadership. He's the one that we knew best in Wales because his Brexit responsibilities meant that he was here regularly, and we were in regular contact with him. And you, know, of course, Labour is already thinking uh, ahead. And for us, I think, you know, this crisis must be regarded as the sort of expenditure you would incur during a war wartime. Uh, when you aim to put the finances uh, right over an extended period of time afterwards. You don't think it's something that you're going to claw back over a short uh, period. Um, It will involve, it ought to involve uh, progressive taxation, where people who can afford to pay more do pay uh, more, and it absolutely ought not to uh, be borne by those people who have turned out to be at the front line and the most useful people to us in fighting coronavirus, they must not be allowed to go back to the back of the queue uh, in a post-coronavirus world. And, you know, that, that, that's what Labour will be saying. And that's absolutely consistent with what the values and beliefs of uh, the Labour Party would always guide you to say.
0: The irresistible comparison is 1945, where Britain comes through a war and then elects a Labour government to deal with the aftermath. And Boris Johnson's obviously been very keen on uh, attaching himself to the Churchill brand, perhaps not that element of it, of a, of a leader who then gets booted out. But do you think, I mean, Labour obviously has an electoral mountain to climb. So even if the mood of the nation is moving towards, say, Keir Starmer or Labour in general, in the wake of something like this. And I think there is now huge public sympathy for the things you said about Frontline staff, supermarket workers—about the people we value in our economy and our society—is it beyond the realms of possibility that Labour could win the next election on the back of this?
1: Well, we, of course, we, we we can't possibly think ourselves into that position. Although the electoral mountain is very steep indeed, but you know it looked hugely steep in 1945, didn't it? You know, who yeah. believed that there'd be a Labour government then, and why was there a Labour government then? Well. Because when people have made huge sacrifices, uh, they need to know that those sacrifices were made for a purpose and that something better can come out of something awful. So the wartime experience is you know, hugely awful and challenging for so many families and individuals. But Labour's message in 1945 was, you know, a better world can be built for you uh, out of all of this. And hope and fear are always, you know, the, amongst the most basic sort of messages in politics, aren't they? Uh, and Labour's message has to be one of hope, has to be one to say to people, we went through all of this, we got through it because of the astonishing solidarity that people have shown for one another uh, during it. And we have to have a return on all of that. And the return on it has to be uh, we don't just head Headlong back into being one of the most unequal societies uh, you know in the whole of Europe, where the gap between the top and the bottom is so corrosive to us uh, in so many ways, you know damages our economy, damages our sense of well-being, damages our sense of community solidarity. Uh, we can afford uh, in every way to be a country where the gap between the top and the bottom is narrowed, and the dividend you create through that. It's a dividend we invest together in in devising collective solutions to the problems that face us all. You know, I mean, I may be just lucky that those messages are still messages that resonate in Wales. You know, one way or another, we have had a Labour government for the whole of devolution. um, And that's not an accident. I, you know, the the Tories on the floor of the assembly often say that to me accusingly. you have been there for 20 years you know, as though we just got lucky in a raffle. Uh, and I explained to them, you know, we're here for 20 years because for five times in a row, we have persuaded people to vote for Labour. And some of the things I've just said to you, you know, I, I know still resonate with the way that people in Wales think about how you shape our futures.
0: With that extended period of popularity that you've enjoyed in Wales, obviously comes the responsibility of delivering those services. How difficult has it been since this crisis hit to Get up and running a testing regime to get PPE where it's needed. So much of the focus has been on the UK government, but but what challenges have you faced as a leader and, and, and as a government in managing to acquire all the stuff you need and get these tests out as quickly as possible?
1: Well, at different times, uh, PPE has been our top anxiety, and at other times, testing has overtaken it. Uh, on PPE, I think we've um, managed. Uh, I think in all the circumstances, we've managed pretty well. Uh, We've never had a day in Wales where um, our hospitals ran out of any um, item of PPE. We never, and goodness, had to issue uh, advice to clinicians about how they would have to reuse gowns and so on. Uh, That's not to say there have been some difficult days, but we've always just kept our head above water, and we have moved into... Uh, calmer territory, um, a combination of using contacts that we've had in Wales with places overseas. We've had half a million uh, fluid resistant gowns, which were the most um, scarce item across the UK at one point, come into Cardiff Airport and have been able to assist other parts of the United Kingdom with that. And we've put a big effort into stimulating indigenous production uh, of items too. So Here's, again, one of the big lessons from all of this, isn't it, is that we don't want to go back to over-reliance on what turn out to be very fragile supply chains across the globe, which collapse as soon as uh, the going gets really tough. So having indigenous manufacturing of gloves, scrubs, masks, face shields, all of those things are being produced in Wales today and weren't 10 weeks ago. So on PPE, I think we've come through the worst and are in a more stable position. Uh, Testing has been challenging because the approach to testing has changed over time uh, as the advice has changed. And it is genuinely challenging. You know, I have gone out and done interviews to explain to people why the advice to us as a government was very clearly that there was no clinical value in testing people in care homes who had no symptoms of coronavirus. You know, that there wasn't a clinical value and that we weren't going to do it. Um, Four weeks later, uh, the advice has changed. We're moving into a different testing regime where we're doing community testing. And now testing people in care homes who have symptoms and who don't have symptoms has a value. But it's, uh, the science has changed, so we changed the policy. Explaining that, why something that was wrong four weeks ago is right today, is quite a challenge. And um, where are we today? We have more tests available than ever before. We are doing more tests than ever before. And we are now going to be part of the UK portal for tests. Um, complicated reasons why that wasn't uh, sensible originally because of data problems, but now those are resolved and Welsh people can also tap into the UK supply of tests. The next big challenge, of course, is to get that Test Trace Protect system in place. Um, huge efforts being made by our local authorities and our health boards, together with our Public Health Wales. Uh, organization and we're working really hard to get that in place but it's a major challenge uh, and um, even when it's up and running it will still continue to develop over a few more weeks ahead to get to where it finally will need to be
0: Matt Hancock got into a bit of trouble for for setting a clear target saying 100,000 tests a day by I can't remember what the date was and then didn't hit the target Um, You've taken a slightly different approach and said that you don't think targets are always the right way to go. I mean, you know, people like Matt Hancock might say, well, I didn't hit the 100,000 target, but by setting an ambitious target, I forced the system, the department, the civil service to at least try and deliver it. And then we got more done. But do you think sometimes setting a target can have a a, a, a negative impact?
1: Well, what happens is that people obsess about the target. And they obsess about the number of tests and without asking themselves at all about what is the purpose of this test? What is the use that you can put that test to? And you end up, if you're not careful, offering tests to all sorts of people where the clinical value in a person having a test is pretty marginal. So I didn't want us to be in a position where every time I get in front of a camera, I'm just being asked about the number. What I wanted to have was a conversation with people in Wales about the number, because we have grown the numbers over the whole period, but the purpose and the point of testing. you know Where do you use your tests? Who are the tests most useful for? How do you make sure that tests are accessible for the people who need them? How do you make sure that having had the test, you have a fighting chance of getting the result of the test uh, and getting that result put in your GP record so that the doctor who will be advising you knows what the result of that test was. So the point, the reason for us not just focusing on the number was to have a broader conversation and a broader opportunity for the system to focus not just on, you know, churning up the number of tests, but making sure that those tests were being used to the best possible advantage.
0: Is there a risk, though, that it that it that it takes that lack of urgency out of the system, or that it allows opponents to say, "Well, you don't want to hit a target because you know you're not going to be able to deliver it"? That it suggests, perhaps, that not that uh, the the capacity isn't there.
1: Well, of course, it's only uh, you know. There's always a vulnerability to that sort of political attack. We have about five and a half thousand tests available in Wales every day, and we're actually using around 2000 of them. So uh, lack of capacity is not a problem. We have more capacity than we need to use at present. Because uh, the people who we are targeting for our tests, key workers in hospitals and their families, patients in hospitals, residents and staff in care homes, plus some other key public sector workers, we are meeting the demand for those tests with some headroom in our system. So Uh, It is not that there are people in Wales today who need a test and aren't getting it. Uh, The number we have already allows us to meet that demand. What we're doing is we're gearing up for the future where a community-based testing regime will require uh, the whole of the capacity we've got now and more.
0: There's nationwide anxiety within Wales and within the UK about the situation in care homes for the people who've contracted COVID-19, for the people who've tragically passed away and for their loved ones and for the staff that are low-paid and and, and the front-line. In Wales, the Older People's Commissioner has reported the Welsh Government to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission over delays to testing in care
1: homes. What does that mean as a process? Um, Well, I think I probably just have to be careful and say to you that um, I don't think the Older Person's Commission uh, has been um, accurately reported. Uh, She has been in touch with the Welsh Government today Uh, and has said to us in absolute terms, she has not reported the Welsh Government to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. That is not what she has done. Uh, What she has done, which is absolutely proper for her to do, is to raise concerns about the way in which our testing regime has been applied in care homes, and whether that has met the needs uh, of older people in our society. And We're the only part of the United Kingdom to have an older person's commissioner, uh, she is entirely independent of the Welsh Government, and she is absolutely acting properly to raise concerns on behalf of older people in Wales. But um, reporting the Welsh Government to the Equality and Human Rights Commission is not what she has done. What she has done is to raise her concerns, and I'm very glad uh, that she has done because that's part of the challenge that we that we need uh more broadly. Of course, you are right. You know, care homes have been on the front line uh, of all of this, and it is it is a very sad story when you see the number of people who have died in care homes across the United Kingdom, including Wales. Um, Wales has actually had the fewest number of deaths in care homes of any part of the United Kingdom, but that's no great uh, record to be proud of, given the number of people who have died. And what do we know about the virus? You know, it attacks older people. It attacks people with underlying health conditions. It attacks people who live in close proximity with one another. And, you know, it's harder to get a better description of a of a care home, isn't it, than, than all those things being in place. So 8 out of 10 care homes in Wales have had no confirmed cases of coronavirus at all. But in the 20% who have, once the virus is into the door, you know, you've got to work very hard indeed to stop it from spreading. Uh, in conditions where people are close by one another, where you may have people who trying to confine people's movements can be a challenge if someone has dementia, part of the way they cope is by just you know being able to walk around in the care home itself it's a huge challenge, and testing is one part of it, but there are other more important parts really in the way that lives can be protected in terms of the physical environment everything we are doing to stop visitors to care homes uh, because the fewer people who go in the less chance there is of the virus being imported Um, the way the care home is run and organized in terms of you know not catching it from surfaces and things like that ppe um there are five different things that uh, we have on our repertoire that need to be done in care homes. And testing is actually fifth out of five. All are important and testing is important. But by itself, uh, it, isn't the, it, it isn't the complete answer. You worked
0: for Rodri Morgan, the uh, famous First Minister for Wales. How much has he been an influence on the way that you've done your job?
1: Uh, well, he's a huge influence on me because... Uh, I, I knew him throughout his political career. His wife, Julie Morgan, who's a member of the Welsh Government uh, now, she and I were both elected as councillors on Morgan County Council in uh, 1985. And Rodri was elected as MP for Cardiff West in 1987. So we always used to say to him that we'd been elected before, uh, before he was. Uh, but I knew him from then on and, uh, you know, campaigned alongside him for devolution. Uh, and when he became first minister in the year 2000, he asked me to come and work uh, for him. So for 10 years, I worked you know, uh, as the head of his political office in the Welsh government. So he was a huge influence uh, for me. And I do think I think of him almost every day, really. Um, hugely miss not being able to have directly his uh, advice and thoughts as to the right thing to do. and. Um, you know, I, I remember saying to somebody the other day, R- Rodri was not a man given to philosophy very much." You know, he was uh, he was someone who just believed in living life and living life very much to the full. But if you work in a first minister's office, there are always going to be days when things don't go according to plan, and you can have some difficult days. And just a few times over those ten years, at the end of the day, he would gather the few people who were left uh, in the office, uh, and he would say to me and other people, "He said." Don't worry about today. Don't go home and dwell on what has happened today. Go home and think about what we can do better tomorrow. And in many ways, I think that's how he that's how he managed his political life, which had lots of ups and downs uh, in it, particularly you know, in, in becoming First Minister. But he, was, he had a remarkable ability to focus on the future and not to, not, not to be turning over in his mind you know, all the things that we could have done differently and so on. And uh, after a tough day here, uh, I go home and I try and remember that advice. I'm not sure I'm I'm as good at it as he was, uh, but I am sure that it's very good advice.
0: It's brilliant advice. And it's advice that sadly, I think many people in politics might never hear that politics can be so exhausting. and, And there's a kind of macho element to it that people sort of Burn themselves out every day. And obviously politics is chaos, a lot of it. And there's there's things like the situation we're living in now that seem to come out of nowhere. That that attitude. I mean, even I've worked in politics for years. Hearing those words, I think I wish more people would have said that to me when I was working for the Labour Party. Well, it is very good advice, and because as
1: you say, you can you can absolutely exhaust yourself. Uh you know. I used to think when I was a special advisor working down in in the assembly building, you know, people can get so worked up and so overwhelmed by something. And you take two steps outside the building and practically nobody you meet has heard of it. So, you know, that sort of superheated political uh, world and its ability to connect to the rest of the world is not always very good. But it was it is what Rodri was outstanding at doing you know he was the same person with whoever he was with what you saw was what you got and he was as interested in what anybody had to tell him uh, as anybody else so whether he was talking to a nobel prize winner in which case you know in which he would be delving into the physics and stuff like that and i i always remember coming back to work one january and we will be preparing for First Minister's questions. And there was a question on the order paper that asked him something about licensing laws in Wales. And suddenly he started explaining to me uh, the, the, the intricacies of licensing laws. And I said, Well Roddy, how how do you know all of this? Oh, you said the landlady of the corporation came to dinner last week. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought to myself, well, who else? What other first minister (laughs) would there be? Who would have got everything he knew about licensing laws from a conversation with a landlady of the corporation pub in Canton in Cardiff? But he had, and he she, in his eyes, she was as much an expert in that, because that was the job she did, and she knew all about it, as I say, as if he'd been talking to a chief executive of some big multinational company and the ability to bridge those worlds was something that he had and you know he had quite he had uniquely really
0: tempting to draw comparisons within the UK between Wales and Scotland, Scottish Labour and 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 Welsh Labour, of course, in two very different circumstances. Scottish Labour still going through effectively a, a form of collapse and hasn't quite got itself back on the pitch yet. And the the growing or at least popular Mood for independence in, in Scotland. Why don't you think the Welsh independence movement has mobilised in the same way? And how has Welsh Labour been able to effectively still be the voice of that non English Labour heartland in a way that Scottish Labour failed to do?
1: Well, um, here is my account of it. Matt is. Uh, I think uh, the problem that occurred in Scotland was that somehow the SNP managed to convince people uh, that if you wanted to be Scottish, you had to support the SNP, that the identity of being Scottish went with uh, that party. And somehow the Labour Party allowed that to happen. Uh, whereas in Wales, both Rodri Morgan and Carwyn Jones, my predecessor, uh, worked so hard to make sure that to be Welsh and to be Labour went, you know, was like putting one hand on top of the other, Uh, and that you did not have to express your Welshness by voting for a nationalist party, that you could vote for the Welsh Labour Party, and that expressed both your politics and your sense of Welshness at the same time. And, you know, they worked very hard to make sure that that happened. And I think that's why, you know, you've not seen a nationalist party in Wales be able to make anything like the headway that they have. In Scotland, it's combining um, sort of politics, politics with identity politics, and not leaving a gap between them.
0: Mark, this has been uh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of what must be pleasure. the busiest you, time Paul. of your life. So thank you for doing I it. We managed to get Thanks. through the Zoom meeting um, without anyone saying the F word. So that
1: <laughs> evening, Wales, there we are. but <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed. Well, they go,
0: Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales. It's so easy sometimes from afar to get dragged into this idea of that of the, the UK nations are somehow competing against each other or in some sort of... that The governments of them, I mean, are not at war, but there's some sort of antagonism there, like they're trying to trip the other one up or that they think that one of them's wrong or stupid or whatever. I just found that so demystifying. To talk to Mark about his expert. Now, no one doubts that he's a Labour man. He's a left-wing Labour man. But the way he talks about the practicalities of interacting with the other UK nations and with the UK government, I just think all of us, whatever part of the UK we live in, whatever our politics are, there's something hugely reassuring that at a time like this, people with hugely different political outlooks, whether that's party political or their view towards the United Kingdom, are prepared to sit round a table with each other and be pragmatic and do what is in the collective interest. And that's, in his case, Arlene Foster, Nicola Sturgeon, Boris Johnson and Mark Drakeford. That covers a vast array of different political positions and traditions. And certainly the impression I got from Mark was that on the whole... People are being pragmatic and people are being helpful. And I think that is a reassuring and positive note to hold on to. Thank you so much for downloading this. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with any reflections or any suggestions. And please do leave a review on iTunes. Now, a lot of you have done that and it's really, really kind of you. And it really helps. It helps get the podcast up the charts, helps other people find out about it. Um, which is uh, obviously a good thing to do um, in my view and hopefully in yours so I hope you're keeping well Uh, and I hope whatever wherever you are however you're dealing with this um, and again you know I've said this before but I think it's worth saying again I know people are experiencing this in hugely different ways some people in the middle of nowhere on their own, some people in crowded conditions, some people have had it, some people haven't, some people have lost people really close to them that they care about and love, and it's it's really difficult, and I know that. So I don't say that flippantly. I really mean it, whatever situation you're in. I, and I just hope this podcast helps, and I know, obviously, today was a big conversation about dealing with coronavirus, not really the medical side, but I know for some people that is distressing. Um, but obviously I can't talk to someone who's in charge of leading a nation's response to it and not talk about it Um, but I just want you to know that whenever I'm talking about it, I am aware that it's horrific for a lot of people so I'm never engaging with it in a superficial way, I'm always asking the questions either from a political point of view and just interested in the practicalities and how things work, but if ever it does strain to the medical, I'm obviously always acutely aware that this is people we're talking about and when, wherever you are listening to this, it may well have affected you in a, in a very harmful way, in a, in a very damaging way. So, um, I just hope that this podcast, in some way, helps entertain, helps inform, helps take you out of whatever situation you're in, should you require that. And, um, got some great guests coming up. So, I'll see you soon. Stay safe, stay well, stay happy. Ta